peace altar. What is, do you say peace arms? The Psalms? Anyone else? <laughs> oh, maybe it's just me. <laughs> or Tinakoto, Tine Ahi Ahi No My Haramai. Welcome along to the evening service. Great to have you with us. Thanks for coming out this evening. Uh, my name is Rob, and I'm still, I like to think of myself as still new on the team, especially when comments like that are made. Pasolta, uh, Pasolta. We'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> um, I want to start off tonight just. Uh, um, giving some muffy to uh, Mike. What a sermon last week, bro. Just want to say, yeah, big stacks, yeah. Can we be passionate followers of Jesus while wrestling with doubt? I think that's a great sermon for you to have a watch. And so you can go online to uh, uh, on our app or on our website and then uh, have a listen to that. I thought it was fantastic. Um, so tonight... Uh, I want to jump into a very familiar psalm to a lot of us, and that is Psalm 51. Uh, how many of you are familiar with Psalm 51? Yeah, okay, i got a few hands. Everyone's just like this tonight. Everyone's a little bit held back. Um, but Psalm 51 is familiar to us because it's written by David. It's one that's used a lot um, in songs and poems. I mean, most of you probably know a song that some of the lines out of this familiar psalm come from. Uh, and it's, it's creating me a clean heart. I mean, you've heard that line before, creating me a clean heart. Yeah, there's, there's these amazing lines that come out of the psalm and are used a lot. And it's a psalm that uh, certainly gives words and images for me, and, and this is part of our journey in the psalms, that make sense of our everyday life. They're things that give words to a world and people that we encounter. It's a psalm that acknowledges in us our frailty and, and our humanity. And I think it's an exciting psalm to jump into tonight. So I've chosen that. And I've called tonight's sermon, uh, The Penitent Heart. Who understands that word penitent? It's to, it's to know remorse. It's to be in a space of pain and be okay in that space. It's to be in that place where God can speak to us. Amen. And uh, that's what I love about this psalm. Uh, it's the fourth psalm out of seven in the uh, entire uh, collection of psalms. That's what they call a penitential psalm. There's seven of them throughout Scripture. And if you can tell me what the other five are next week, the six are, I'll give you a little book, okay? It's a little book called uh, The Songs of Jesus. So people are going to go home, find out what those other six are. I dare you not to Google it. Okay, some of you are Googling it right now. I can see you with your phones. All right. I've got, this is uh, Songs of Jesus. It's uh, 365 days of um, devotions in the Psalms by Tim Keller. So um, that can be yours next week. If you can bring me those six, that would be good. All right. So this penitential psalm, uh, it encapsulates the posture of David. And uh, the reason why I want to go there is because it's, it's one which we all wrestle with, but yet don't understand. It's one that has some really key elements for our walk in faith, but we don't fully grasp. And uh, I love it. We often read it, but we don't really know it. And so I want to share a little bit of the backstory. So if you go in your Bibles to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 13, this is where the story heats up. So David has just um, sent the army forward and, uh, and killed Uriah. 
Now, Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba, and we all know what David and Bathsheba got up to. All right. Now he saw her on on her roof. Now you know they would have been. He would have been in his castle. He's the king, right? He's up here in his highest point in the in in the kingdom. He looks down. He sees her. He goes and takes her, and uh, and to try and uh, get around the sin, he thinks, "How can I get this?" You know, she falls pregnant. She's going to be having this baby. And, and David's like, yikes, I've fallen so far from what I'm supposed to be doing. How do I cover this up? Anyone been in that place before? Not adultery. I'm not asking anyone to. <laughs> you're lucky you didn't put your hand up there, especially if you're married. Uh, but anyone been in that place where they've had to sort of put their hand up and say, you know what, God, uh, I'm going to try and cover this up just to save face. Well, this is what David's doing. He is the king, right? Snaps his finger, people are dead, you know. It's, it's that kind of level. We don't understand that kind of power uh, in our society, especially New Zealand society. Some societies in the world still have people with that kind of power. But this is the world that David lives in. He has so much power. And he's, he's taken it to the point where he is now using that power for wrong. He is known as, you just go back one chapter, God calls him the man after his own heart. The man after God's own heart, here he is, deep in sin. And we pick up in uh, verse 12, we'll come to a little passage in a second. I'm going to read you the, the preamble because this is, just, this is just gold. This is setting up Psalm 51. It says uh, in chapter 12, verse 1, The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town. Now, Nathan, just to give you a bit of background, he's a prophet. Okay, prophets are allowed to speak this way to the kings. They don't get uh, blottoed from the, from the king. All right? So Nathan comes to David. He knows what's going on, and he needs, to, he needs to challenge him on this. Think about how wise he is when he does this. And when he came to him, he said, There were two certain men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. He had bought. He raised it and he grew it uh, up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. I don't even let my dog sleep in the house. All right. It slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. How many of you got a sheep as a daughter? Just getting that rich picture for you there. Uh, now, a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep and cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. And then we read this. David, hearing this story from Nathan, he burns with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. See what he says? It's such a compelling story. He's he surely must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. How many of you have had someone come and tell you a story and have that kind of punchline to it? Yeah? You, that person must die. They should be punished. That person is you. This is where David has come to. 
And then he goes on to say, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hands of Saul. I gave your master's house to and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have even given you more. But no, you decided you'd take that power into your own hands and take something that wasn't yours. Do you realize how powerful you were? Do you realize how much clout you held? I gave you everything. And you chose to do this. <laughs> it's at this juncture, as Nathan's saying these words, that Saul starts to get that. Uh, sorry, David starts to get that, that feeling in his gut. And we've all felt it. It's just like, I am that man. I am that man. And so he writes Psalm 51. He writes Psalm 51. The question is what or how would you respond to someone calling you out like that? Would you write a psalm? <laughs> would you write these words down? Would you be telling anyone? You see, Nathan knows he's going to be telling the people. He's going to be telling that David isn't quite the leader. And he thinks that that's what's in his heart. He's like, oh no, I'm found out. See, it shouldn't take us to get to the point of when we're being found out to confess and to do something different. Okay, God wants us to feel that and realize it in that moment. See, the enormity of David's sin, the man after God's own heart, it moves it to write this confession, this lament, this prayer of repentance. And so... We will read. I'll just get whoever's on the computer to follow me as I read this. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Here's a great little line. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. I want to pause there for a second. How many of you have know that word purge? All right, it push, it's this, this to push out. It's to clear out. All right. And this, uh, this herb they call hyssop, it's quite amazing. See, this, I just want to pick up on this one picture here before I carry on. Hyssop was this bunch of things they used like a brush. And in the Old Testament, Leviticus, what they'd do is they'd bring the lepers in and they would, they would kill the, the fatted calf or the lamb or whatever they're doing. They'd take the blood and they would dip this hyssop in it and they would sprinkle it on the lepers. And the lepers would be healed. And then they would take this and they would, they would flick it on those who, were, um, who had touched dead bodies. The idea was that they would be drawn out of that, that space, this unclean space. Here's a third picture. They used to take hyssop 
And you know in the, the picture of the Passover, they used to dip that and they used it to put it on the, the doorposts of the house so the angel of death would pass by. This is very well-chosen words. Cleanse me, purge me, drive out those things from me with hyssop. It's a powerful image. And I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be watered in snow. I have seen this take effect, right? This is what David's saying. I know that God, you can do something that I can't. It's an amazing picture. It goes on. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart. See, the heart is a place of where the, the wellspring of, of truth and, and life, if your heart is corrupt in, in the Old Testament, everything about you is corrupt. If you don't have a good heart, we can't trust you. Uh, do not cast me from your presence. Lord, it's so important. Uh, take your Holy, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the blood, uh, the guilt of bloodshed. O oh God, you are my God and Savior. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. My, open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. He's talking about a future with Jesus. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. I won't do 18 and 19 because it's talking about the future in Jerusalem. But what's, what's David done? He's got himself into a position of contrition. He's there. He, he has written these words to speak of the place he's found himself in, but also to acknowledge the fact that God wants to do something in him and through him even in the midst of this calamity, this disaster. The thing I love uh, about, not only about this psalm, but the psalms in general is their ability to bring to life through words and through metaphor the depths of our lived experience. Yeah. When I read a psalm like that, I can take myself back to a place where I felt so ashamed, so broken, and I didn't have words. I just sat there and I wept. Someone has felt what I have felt. They've experienced the emotions, the joys, the pains, the sorrows, and have made it come to life in the psalm. This week I saw Bernie's video online. I don't know if any of you are friends with Bernie. You're going to get 100 friends after this, Bernie. Um, he posted a video online, and for me that was a modern-day psalm. Okay, because it was a montage video of all these different, his favorite movies, hundreds of them. Uh, but every now and then it was punctuated with just a, a sentence from a movie or, or just an image that just hung there a little bit longer. For me, what Bernie posted was a modern day psalm. It was this picture of the journey that he'd been on, right? This journey through the emotions, the ups, the downs, the joys, the sadness of his last year or so. For me... That was a psalm. It spoke of a lived experience for him and Vika. I love it. This is what David's doing. He's, he's giving us words for something that we don't have words for. 
And in the psalm, I think there is this, this process. He gives us this image of a step-by-step process in working through and encountering God. It's a guide towards God's grace and his mercy, exactly where he finds you in the midst of whatever you're going through. This is what Psalm 51 is. And there's three parts to it. There's three parts to it. The first part is recognition. See, one of the most important things that David had to do was to recognize where he was. Nathan called it out and said, you, you're a scumbag, bro. You need to live with that right now. It's not okay where you are. You need to change. He had to call it out in him. He had to know it deep down. See, recognition and the acknowledgement of the deep valley between us and God, our sin uh, that we have created, along with the genuine ache for the impact that it has had on those who we've sinned against, is very, very important in the psalm and in our process of renewal. If we can't recognize it, we don't really care. If we can't feel it, careful, Rob. If we can't feel it, we don't care. You know, I was hearing Caleb talk about his daughter. My daughter does the same thing uh, when she comes up. Ah, Dad, if you if you you haven't felt that, you don't know it. <laughs> it's just one of those things. You just you feel it. Hide your face from my sins. Wash away my iniquity. These are the kinds of things. Cleanse me, Lord. I know that I've done wrong in it, and I'm ashamed of it. His recognition in his voice. Recognition and acknowledgement is a deep heart thing. One of my favorite movies uh, called The Shawshank Redemption. Um, It's this one here. Let me just click that over. There we go. This is not one for people under the age of 16. (laughs) Uh, One of the lead characters, uh, Morgan Freeman, as you can see up there, his name's Red. And uh, he's been brought up before the parole board many times. And I want to just show you a short clip of that because it's in this moment and in these moments that you see the transition for him, this realization of who he is and where he got to. So let's just watch that. We see by your file you've served 20 years of a life sentence. Yes, sir. You feel you've been rehabilitated? Oh, yes, sir. Absolutely, sir. I mean, I learned my lesson. I can honestly say that I'm a changed man. I'm no longer a danger to society. That's God's honest truth. Sit down. 
says here that you serve 30 years of life since. You feel you've been rehabilitated? Oh, yes, sir. Without a doubt. And I can honestly say I'm a changed man. No danger to society here. God's honest truth. Absolutely rehabilitated. Boyd Redding, your files say you've served 40 years of a life sentence. You feel you've been rehabilitated? Rehabilitated? Well, now, let me see. You know, I don't have any idea what that means. Well, it means you're ready to rejoin society. I know what you think it means, Sonny. To me, it's just a made-up word. A politician's word, so that young fellows like yourself can wear a suit and a tie and have a job. What do you really want to know? Am I sorry for what I did? Well, I There's not a day goes by I don't feel regret. Not because I'm in here, because you think I should. I look back on the way I was then. A young, stupid kid who committed that terrible crime. I want to talk to him. I want to try to talk some sense to him. Tell him the way things are. But I can't. That kid's long gone and this old man is all that's left. I gotta live with that. <laughs> you see the transition over the years. Hope-filled expectation. If I say the right thing, they'll let me go. The parole f happens every year. So from year 20, you imagine that 20 years in a row, the slow decline to that. What you don't see is they actually stamp it and he's a free man and uh it's it's a powerful it's a powerful um image for me of the reality of that recognizing of what's going on in our lives that acceptance and the proper processing the young guy on the other side of the table saw in red the transformation i wonder can you say the same words about some of the things you've experienced. It's not a day that goes by I don't feel regret. If I hear someone say that, I see some recognition here. I see a heart that is broken, a heart that is contrite, a penitent heart. The honest heart that although dejected, shines through with a genuine remorse for where they've got to. There's uh, three or four different commentators likened this recognition to understanding cosmic treason. I mean, you know what the concept of treason is. 
a few of you. It's this uh, subversion or betrayal of leadership generally of a country. It's this, I understand that what I've done has got me to this point. This is the, the picture they, they give to us. It's overthrowing the rule of the one to whom you owe everything. And like the second Samuel passage, recognition is the exposure of those motives and the roots that have caused the sin, and there is a genuine remorse that goes with it. This is the recognition that I, I read in David's words in the psalm. There's a second element to this, and it's this word repentance. True repentance cannot happen without true recognition. There's got to be an understanding of where I've come from so that I can say the apology I need to say. There's an equal part of pain at the action or position we find ourselves in and the knowledge where we could or should have been. There's that acknowledgement there. We can't truly get to that point. I, my kids fight at home, you know how it is. And you tell them, cut that out, and someone hurts another one, and then you say, say sorry. That gets you a long way. Sorry. I got away with it. We, we have a little thing where we make them circle back. I'm sorry. What did you say? What are you sorry for? Why? Why did you do that? We want them to sit with that and understand, recognize that repentance can't happen without recognition. We're a, we're a pain-averse community, aren't we? See, comfort-driven cultures like ours in which repentance is seldom a factor, we don't kind of get what Scripture talks about a lot of the time when it comes to repentance, when it comes to saying sorry. And, and being in that position like Red, he, he's a broken man. He found himself in a place where he can say, you know what, God, you know what, I was stupid. He, he said different words that transformed the situation. There is, this is where true repentance is always preceded by solid recognition of the gravity of what has transpired. And David says, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. I can't do it on my own, but you can, God. You can come and you can bring that transformation in my life. True repentance has a different kind of recognition that precedes it. Have you ever used your higher position to break rules, to steer things, circumstances in your favor? I have. Yeah. We, we, we've all done it at some point in our lives. We've just got to recognize it. Was I sorry about it? Not in the moment. You know, a, a few weeks back when I had this crash, there was this realization when the police officer came to me. He said, look, I'm going to give you a ticket. I was like, Joyce, rub salt in the wounds. He said, I'm giving you a ticket, but you know what? If anyone had been injured today, you'd be going to court. And that could result in a prosecution by a court judge. It was in that moment as I sat on the side of the road, they just sunk really deep. I was already like absolutely beside myself because we'd crashed the car and I had kids in the car. But it was that moment when he spoke this, he was just, it sunk down. Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus, that this wasn't worse than it was. You see, it's in acknowledging what we have and what we have been given that we can enter true repentance. 
Repentance is saying sorry with a knowledge of what you're saying sorry about. And the person who you're repenting to understands and knows that. And only then can repentance turn into something more important. There's a great, uh, a great little quote from Tim Keller. He says, Repentance is a heart that knows how little it deserves, yet how much it has received. Sometimes we think of it as luck, but the reality is it's more than that. It's deeper than that. The third part of this is a word which we're not very good at. It's restoration. So we recognize and repent something needs to be made right. There's an action that we must take. Repentance is part of that action, but restoration, the full restoration, not just of you, but the parties that have been affected by your action needs to be changed. We live in a world that finds it easy to condemn, but very hard to forgive. Uh, us Kiwis are even worse when it's coming to pull out the rug uh, from under people who get a little bit too big for their boots, right? We're pretty good at that. But we also don't have a strong concept of restoration, especially when it comes to uh, relationships or, or leadership, uh, moral failure, maybe it's drugs, um, maybe family violence. <sighs> let, them, let them reap the rewards of their bad behavior. I've heard that from people. Except, however, when it comes to stuff, you know, like there's a lot of TV programs about restoring things like cars and so forth. They take something from, you know, really old and broke it out the back and they, and they bring it back to it and they add value to it. And it's this, we love that culture, that restorative culture. Yes, it's great. But not the broken culture. Do you know what? God, through Jesus, takes the same attention to detail in his restoration of you and I when we fail. When we find ourselves in a pit of shame, when we have stuffed up, when we are broken, God wants to take the same attention to you, to restoring you into a better shape than you were, to adding value to you, to restore and to return you is what he wants to do. It's part of the same verb in the Hebrew that they use in here, this word restore, is to return you to that same place. I... Um, I'm always, I'm always um, touched by the fact that Jesus is the restorer. See, our biggest problem in restoration isn't Jesus, but us. It's our inability to allow someone, ourselves included, back into community, back into relationship, back into fellowship, back into leadership. When I read the Old Testament, there was a culture of jubilee, of liberation. Every 50 years, those canceled debts liberated people. Do we have that kind of culture for ourselves? Can we forgive? I was meeting with um, a guy regularly in Auckland who was in the remand wing of Mount Eden. He had groomed young people and uh, been found guilty and was to do five years in prison. My greatest concern for him was what happens to him when he comes back. It's an indelible stain that sits on your record forever. What community was I going to be able to help him find restoration in? 
What community would accept him into their presence again? One that had some strict rules, I'm sure. He struggled for a long while, but he got there. It's an amazing community that's looking out for him. Got a job. For me, we we struggle with the restoration part. We don't think we're worth it. If we don't think we're worth it, we need to go back to the start. We need to recognise and repent so that we can restore. Spurgeon, last quote. Charles Spurgeon. He says these words. There may be some sins of which a man cannot speak, but there is no sin the blood of Christ cannot wash away. I add my amen to that, but do we believe it? Do we allow that to be a truism of our life? That there's no sin the blood of Christ cannot wash away. To welcoming people into community. I uh, got to see this week, this is the last a little image I'll leave with you. <clears throat> I got to see this week an amazing restorative, I think, uh, wedding. <laughs> Bree was involved with that, and I just saw these amazing uh, families come together, and this church family just blessed them with a. They did a wedding out here in our in our cafe. Cake, dress, the whole nine yards. It was fantastic. I was the wedding singer. Uh, just saying but for me it was cool to be a part of it I saw this whole family like one of our team was running down the road to Kmart to buy a belt and pants for one of the kids because they didn't have it I mean this for me this this is a a couple who um, as I believe the, the story they they came into this church both of them just heads down we don't know where else to go we're lost and they were embraced they were just loved um, this this wedding born out of um, you know them being able to get their kids back. They'd lost their their four or five kids. I mean, for me, this is what we're about as a church: agents of restoration, agents of repentance. Let me help you to see, so that you can go and make it right. Agents of recognition, speaking the truth and love to one another, so that we can journey together. I invite the band to come uh, tonight as we close. I've got the three words on the board and we have communion before us. Um, I love communion because it gives us a space in which we can reflect, in which we can respond. See, the communion table is is an active connecting with who Jesus is and what he did for us. I've put those three words up there because no matter where you find yourself there, you can come to this table. You see, at this table, we can recognize our dependence on God. You see, these these elements represent the blood and the body of Christ broken for you. Here is forgiveness. If you need to come to this table to repent, you take these elements, you hold them, Say, God, I truly want to know where you are in the midst of this. These elements take us to that place. And maybe it's a place of restoration. I've had on a number of occasions people come to the communion table and they take a cup and they take the bread and they take it to someone. 
And I saw this at our Baptist Hui last year. They took these elements and they took them to someone who had spewed out <laughs> words of malice, violence, culturally towards someone. And she served him communion. She wanted to restore that relationship that she felt was broken. Tonight you can come to this table for all of those things. And so as the team leads us tonight, I'm going to invite you to come and in your own time take of these elements. If you don't want to, that's okay. It's not a requirement for you to come down here. I've made it so you have to get out of your seat and respond. Think of one of those words that you're responding to. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took his, uh, his disciples into the upper room and he, thank you, thank you. Um, and he had bread and wine set out before them in this meal around a table. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this is, this is my blood poured out for you. This is a new covenant. My life transforms everything you know from this day forward. Tonight, thank you. Tonight you can come and you can take, you can break bread and you can eat. God is present. Jesus wants to bring transformation. It's up to you to respond to him.